I would like to warn you that this episode of Off the Watch List is spoiler-filled. So, if you've seen the movie, or you just don't care, welcome to the podcast. Hello, and welcome to Off the Watch List, a podcast about the movies we have no excuse for missing. My name is Luke. My name is Sophia. And what did you watch this week, Sophia? I watched Jaws. So this is a classic, as we all know. Yes. Um, and for that reason, I think I'm glad that I have watched it now. Yeah, I, uh, I'd kind of forgotten some of the more gory there bits of it. There is way more gore than you sold me on. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. It's your fault. Yeah, no. Uh, it's, um, it's important to have watched it, probably. Just for your film education knowledge. There were, it sounds so dumb, but there were a couple times when I was watching it and I was like, ah, this is cinema. And it, it just <laughs> it, it just felt very much like a movie that knew what it was doing, which is interesting considering some of the backstory of the production. But Yeah, we'll get into uh, that. Yeah, and maybe it's because I'm watching it when it already is a classic as opposed to, you know, when it just came out. Um, but it, it definitely, I had a sense of, oh yeah, this is, this is going to stand the test of time. Definitely some of that is informed by the fact that it is a classic, but also, I mean, you can't discount the masterful filmmaking of, of Steven mm-hmm. Spielberg in this movie. Yeah. He's just, he just does such an incredible job, partly by accident, you might say. Yeah. I, it's interesting. He and John Williams working together, especially, I I don't know. I can't exactly put my finger on why, but it is such a distinct vibe. I'm I'm sure I could pick out a John Williams score without knowing it was John Williams, but I think I might be able to pick out Spielberg's filmmaking without knowing ahead of time that it was him. Just it it just oh, yeah. feels very unique and I'm not sure why that is, but you might be able to to shed some light on that as we walk through this yeah i mean he definitely has a definitive style that is very much associated with him he's of all directors he's incredibly interesting because he has a lot of different he makes a lot of different types of movies from action movies like indiana jones or jurassic park to really serious dramas like schindler's list Mm -hmm. and jaws of course falls more on the action side but he's such a versatile director but he definitely has his fingerprints all over all of his movies. It's very clearly a Spielberg movie. Yeah. And it has a lot to do with the style and the way that the story is told. And a lot of the emotion kind of infused throughout these seemingly mundane moments in life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I love when there's, you know, a specific composer and a specific director that just sort of team up and always work together and, and, you know, they combine their individual distinct styles into one unified vision. Yeah. And and so you can tell like so John Williams and Steven Spielberg obviously are are iconic. Let's see Tim Burton and uh Danny Elfman. Danny Elfman actually also very famously known for uh his hit band Oingo Boingo. Yeah, so the, I like them in particular because they're both they're both kind of weird and it always feels like they're on a very similar wavelength of weird. So they, they do this kind of spooky, a little bit unsettling, but really interesting thing together. Damien Chazelle and Justin Hurwitz. It'd probably be a good time to jump into a little bit of Spielberg himself and including John Williams, how we got to Jaws, because there's a lot of background for this movie, both the before the movie and the movie itself, the production, which you kind of already mentioned, was a bit of a disaster. So much so that the crew referred to it as flaws. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Did actually, you know that? <laughs> I, I didn't know that. Actually, the reception of this movie, which we'll get to in a, in a bit, people were so scared of the film. And Spielberg was quoted as saying he had nightmares about the movie, too. But his <laughs> nightmares were that he was back on set shooting. <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> yeah. Wasn't a great set experience. 
But Steven Spielberg himself, at the time this movie came out, wasn't a super established director yet. This was kind of the movie that put him on the map. He was part of a circle of filmmakers in the 1970s called the Film Brats. It was a group of filmmakers in L.A. area. Eventually, they expanded up to San Francisco, but it included some really notable names from Spielberg to George Lucas to Martin Scorsese and Brian De Palma and Francis Ford Coppola and John Milius. All these really big names now in Hollywood, they kind of all grew up together in the film industry, and they were all friends. They got dinner together, which was it's kind of a cool era and time to look back on. The movie came out in 1975. Mm-hmm. And it it's a very weird place in film history because it interrupts this big period of time where there was a bit of renaissance in Hollywood. There was a series of movies coming out, and it's sort of a new age Hollywood is what it's called nowadays. But there were a series of movies coming out, such as Bonnie and Clyde, The Last Picture Show, The French Connection, The Godfather... Serpico, A Clockwork Orange, all of these movies were kind of coming out in the early 70s, mm-hmm. and they were financially successful. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of a revelation that these artistic auteur cinema films were successful. But Jaws kind of interrupted that a bit, because Jaws comes in, not to say it's not artistic, it very much is, but it started the summer blockbuster. It was the first summer blockbuster right. of all time. It came out in the summer was a smash hit. 67 million people went to see it on its opening, made a ton of money, and it really changed the game in Hollywood forever. I mean, you can see the ripple effects of it now if you look at what are big box office hits nowadays. We saw Star Wars come from it. We saw Indiana Jones come from it. And nowadays we've seen Marvel come from it, this huge universe of films that come out every year that make billions of dollars. Yeah, and... I mean, that happened as a complete accident. I mean, they only opened in the summer because they ran so (laughs) over schedule. (laughs) Yeah. And speaking of the schedule, now we can kind of talk a little bit about the actual production of the film, which was a disaster in its own right. It was scheduled for 65 days of shooting. That was the initial shooting schedule. And it lasted 159 days, not on purpose. But Spielberg made the dreaded decision, which every film student or filmmaker in the world nowadays knows not to do unless, I guess, you want to test fate. But they shot on actual water in the actual ocean. They brought their cameras out there. I was wondering about that. they shot in the middle of the ocean. But shooting on the real ocean was a big mistake because it was dead near impossible to get shots on open water. And actually, there's a bit of a funny story here. An accident happened on set while they were shooting where their ship, which is called the Orca in the Mm -hmm. movie, their ship started to sink. And as everything was sinking, Spielberg was shouting to everybody, going, save the actors, save the actors. Of course, you don't want any lawsuits from these rich people. (laughs) And the sound department is there on the boat, holding the tape machines above their head, yelling, uh, (laughs) expletive the actors, save the sound department. (laughs) This here's a family-friendly podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Actually, the film reels got drowned in the ocean waterlogged yeah they got waterlogged but what they didn't realize at the time was that it actually wasn't a problem because the salt water the saline in the water preserved the film strips and so they didn't even know if the footage was usable until they sent it to new york to be processed (laughs) and then it got processed and then they found out that they didn't lose the whole day's shoot which honestly in the grand scheme of things wouldn't really have mattered they were already 100 days over schedule (laughs) whatever (laughs) i'm just kind of laughing thinking about they just sent the film over to new york like a little camera strapped into an airplane seat you just send it on its own. <laughs> you can take care of yourself. Real. <laughs> they commission a whole plane to fly as one camera. <laughs> it's got a private jet. Get them there safe. <laughs> like Moses in the basket. <laughs> oh my Sorry, god! It is, uh, it is rather late at night. <laughs> it wasn't shooting in the ocean. Wasn't the only issue they had with the movie. Mm-hmm. Another one of the big issues was the shark itself. The shark, which they named Bruce, kept breaking down over and over and over again. And there's actually a funny story. Like I mentioned, George Lucas was friends with Steven Spielberg. Mm-hmm. And George Lucas went to visit the set of Jaws mm-hmm. at the time. And 
they went to the warehouse to see the shark because if you're going to visit the set of Jaws, you're going to see the shark. And they walk over and Lucas kind of jokingly puts his head inside the shark to get a photo and Spielberg pressed the button to close the mouth. And the jaws what of the shark, <laughs> the jaws of the shark come down and close on George Lucas, and then the gears get locked. And so George Lucas is sitting there in the shark's mouth with his head in the shark's mouth, and it's stuck. And so they had to pry the head open, and they snuck out of the studio because they were afraid they had broken the shark. That's and something you and your brother would get up to. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're not wrong. Yeah. So shark was named Bruce. After Steven Spielberg's lawyer, which is interesting to ponder, (laughs) (laughs) but also if any devoted Finding Nemo fans Mm. out there are listening, you might be aware that Bruce is also the name of the great white in Finding Nemo, Fish Are Friends, Not Food. And that's after Jaws, of course. If you didn't know, it's an homage. So the movie was meant to be sort of a classic monster movie. So like some of the others you might have seen at the time. But because of the lack of budget and the fact the shark Bruce kept breaking down, the actual use of the shark had to be minimized quite a bit. And that's one of the most notable things about the film is that you don't really see the shark that much. And honestly, the least scary parts of the film are when you do. And... Well, speak for yourself. <laughs> yeah, there's, sorry. there's one scene. <laughs> I'm sorry. And the shark is very much active in that scene. But this is what we mean when we said at the beginning that it was sort of accidentally genius. Mm-hmm. Because, because of the lack of the shark, Spielberg had to get creative with his filmmaking to make up for that. And that involved, like you're mentioning, music. Mm-hmm. The two techniques that I tracked when I rewatched the movie for this discussion were the music and the POV shots, the point of view shot shots from the shark. Mm-hmm. Those were the essential parts of building the tension and suspense of the film. And they came around completely by accident. It's actually pretty fantastic that this movie worked out as well as it did, because if he had had his way, the movie would not be the same at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there were a couple things that I noticed. One thing is that while the music was obviously extremely effective, I thought a really interesting technique was also cutting the music in a lot of key places to to build suspense. It was very clear that somebody knew not just what type of music was needed and when, but also when it would be most effective to not have any music at all. There's a great feeling when you're making a movie when you don't expect things to work out and then they do. Mm-hmm. I've only had it happen to me a couple of times. <laughs> <laughs> Most of the time they don't work out. But that moment where you sit down to edit the movie and you think all the shots are not going to work and then you put them together and they do work. That's a great feeling. And I'm so envious of Steven Spielberg because he must have had that the whole time. Yeah. So the the other technique I noticed was... Every once in a while, you'll get these shots, especially when there's characters out on the water, when they're when they're out in the orca looking for the shark. Every once in a while, there'll be a shot that lasts a couple of seconds of just the water. And because this is a movie about shark attacks, every time that happens, you're expecting the shark to jump out of the water at the camera and, and expecting a, a big jump scare into some sort of action sequence. But that almost never happens. Yeah. Are you familiar with the bomb under the table? With the what? Bomb under the table. I am not. The bomb under the table was a analogy that Hitchcock gave in an American Film Institute lecture that he gave. And it's one of the more notable film lessons of all time. He said that there's two ways to execute a tense moment. One, you can have two people sitting at a table and then a bomb goes off. And it's going to surprise the audience. The audience will probably say, what What happened? Why is there a bomb? Where did it come from? Why is it there? Or what you can do is you can show the bomb under the table. And the characters don't see it, but the audience does. It's like Mm -hmm. a dramatic irony. And what that does is now the audience is sitting there and they're not even listening to the conversation that's happening at the table. They're just thinking to themselves, when is this bomb going to explode? And there's tons and tons of great examples of this. If you are 
interested and if you have the stomach for a Tarantino film. I do not. Tarantino so is... So we will not be watching any Tarantino <laughs> films on this podcast. <laughs> Tarantino is one of the greatest employers of this technique, especially in his film Inglorious Bastards. The opening scene of the movie is about 20 minutes long, and it's just such a masterclass in building suspense. It takes place in Nazi Germany. It does the exact same thing with the bomb under the table, but with a family running from the Nazis under the floorboards of a house. And so mm. it's incredibly masterfully executed. This technique is, like you said, very prevalent in Jaws. You know there's a shark in the water, and you know it because they show you at the beginning, the very first scene of the movie, mm-hmm. but you never know when it's going to jump out. Yeah. And so your characters could just be peacefully talking on a pier, and you're like, uh-oh. <laughs> and you never really know. It's great. It's, yeah. it's just so brilliant. Mm-hmm. I think the last thing of note, I kind of already mentioned it, but I want to bring it up again just because of how important it is, is how much Jaws changed filmmaking. Because it's very fascinating. It's so, so important this movie happened. And it might actually be one of the, if not the most influential movies in the film industry. What is it about this movie in particular? Just the way that it clicked in the cultural zeitgeist. For some reason, this was the movie that everybody wanted to see. And all the high schoolers would go see it and then tell their friends, oh my gosh, this movie was terrifying. Did you see it? I think this was the moment that film and culture kind of intertwined for the first time. Mm-hmm. And you can pop see... Culture. Yeah, pop culture yeah. or film sort of entered the pop culture. And of course, there were popular movies before this, but this was the first time where... <laughs> this was the first movie that people liked. <laughs> <laughs> All movies before 1975, people were kind of mediocre on. But yeah, it really changed the landscape for films to come. And so you might be asking yourself at this point, like, what's so special about this random shark movie? Because think of how many other shark movies there have been since Jaws. The ones with the trailers of the shark jumping out of the water and eating a surfer in one bite. Well, for a starter, there's been Jaws 2. (laughs) There's been Jaws 3D. Oh, yeah. There's been Jaws the Revenge. Oh, don't forget about Jaws 4. That's Jaws 4 is Jaws the Revenge. Oh, sorry. I'm thinking of Jaws 5. There's no Jaws 5. Are you sure? You're ki- no, there's no Jaws 5. I actually don't know. I'm sorry. No, I'm pretty sure it's it's just 4. It's just 4. I know this <laughs> because I looked up Jaws the Revenge. <laughs> yeah. It's really funny because it just sticks with the same group of characters and they just keep running into great white sharks. <laughs> also, they're played by different actors, right? Are they? Yeah, I think so. So it's like Home Alone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What if we had... What if there's a Home Alone Jaws crossover? crossover. How would that work? Either the shark, Home Alone, he goes to the aquarium. And the shark gets out in the aquarium. Home Alone lost in the aquarium. And the shark. (laughs) Where are you going with this, Sophia? The shark gets out. And then, and then the kid has to set a bunch of traps, shark traps in the aquarium. Or what if to what catch if the shark? What if the kid is on a yacht? Kevin McAllister, he's on a yacht. Yacht alone. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, it didn't work like I thought it would. Okay, I think it worked perfectly. Continue. What if Kevin McAllister is on a yacht or a houseboat or a houseboat? Sure, and he falls off the the boat and he's in the ocean. And he has to set all these traps in the ocean. And he has the iconic line, this is my ocean and I need to protect it. And at the end of the day, it's going to have a very environmentalist message. And then he goes and he he majors in environmental science. Yeah. I think Mm. we got a a picture. He No, okay. He lures the shark to the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. And he has the shark eat all the garbage. And then the garbage is gone and the shark is dead. (laughs) I think we're going to get some conflicting messages here mm-hmm. in terms of environmentalism. And it's saving morally the animals. ambiguous, Kevin McAllister. Oh, you know, you're right. I think that really actually adds to the, the dramatic part of the film. Because you don't know if he just really hates the shark or really cares about the planet. Well, you don't want to force feed your audience. So you don't want to stuff the message like he down force their feeds the shark. Yeah, just like at he, the Pacific Garbage Fat. Just like he force feeds the shark <laughs> all the garbage in the world. <laughs> 
But anyways, what was I saying? I love Home Alone. <laughs> the uh, there are so many other shark movies in the world. This is, I think, where I'm going to hand it off to you for the plot summary. What is it about this movie, the plot of this movie, the characters of this movie that make this movie so so good? We open on Amity Island at night. I, I am assuming it's the beginning of the summer season. It's not really specified. But there's a group of teenagers, college students, all kind of having a bonfire in the beach. Two of them run off, guy and a girl. Her name is Chrissy Watkins. I don't know if he's ever given a name. But she goes out swimming in the ocean. And I think... I think is he drunk? He's he's drunk, right? Yeah, they're definitely party kids. Okay, okay, okay. So so he's drunk and he just falls asleep on the beach while nice. she's swimming out in the ocean in the dark, uh, which is real great. And Good she job, man. gets attacked by something beneath the surface, and because this is Jaws, we the audience know that it is a shark, and there's a or it could be a giant octopus. We don't know. We don't see oh, it. Oh, I wish it was. What if there was another movie? What if Home Tentacles. Alone? <laughs> what if Home Alone uh, Houseboats was actually about a giant octopus? Yes. I think we got ourselves a story. So um, representatives of Universal, you can contact us at offthewatchlist at gmail.com if you're interested in inquiring <laughs> about this this pitch. So anyway, it's it's not disturbing, disturbing, but it really gets to you a little bit. This scene, it's it's a very drawn out scene. Of, Visceral. You know, her trying to swim away. She's calling for help. This guy is just snoozing on the beach. It's one of the first examples of the Steven Spielberg masterful filmmaking. I think it's the next morning, the the morning after Chrissy Watkins gets eaten we meet the new chief of police by the name of Martin Brody. And and he is new to the area, right? That's that yeah, sort of contributes to yeah. yeah. But so he is taken down to the beach where he finds Chrissy's remains. And fun fact, they had a fake arm that they buried in the sand. And oh my gosh, it's a it's a revolting shot. There's, you know, her her corpse and a bunch of crabs crawling all over it. But yeah. they they had a, a fake arm that they buried in the sand. Steven Spielberg wasn't happy with the way it looked. And so they buried a crew member <laughs> in the sand and just had her arm stick up. Uh, I wondered how they do that. I wonder if they had like a cloth over her face and a straw out of her mouth or something. Maybe. To get air, because, I mean, she must have gotten air somehow. Maybe, yeah. Or maybe they just had to make it really quick. <laughs> or maybe they just killed her for the shot. I mean. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> so one way or another, they find Chrissy's remains. She's taken in by the medical examiner, and he rules her death a shark attack. And... Chief Brody, understandably, freaks out. He closes the beaches because that's the reasonable thing to do. Yeah, I'd say that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And then Mayor Mayor Vaughn, I mm-hmm. believe, he comes to Brody and he's sort of like, oh, no, 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 no. You don't get it. We need our economy. And so he is absolutely pitching the idea that it was a boating accident. That's all it was, boating accident. And he sort of kind of pressures the medical examiner into agreeing with this statement. And so he changes his report to boating accident, even though you can you can sort of see him hesitate. He knows that this isn't fully sitting right with him. And it's not sitting right with Brody either. But, you know, he's the new guy in town. He goes along with what the mayor says. Can't do much about it. Mm -hmm. He can't do much about it. And then there's a very busy summer weekend at the beach. I don't think it's, it's not 4th of July yet, but that's, that's being thrown around throughout the whole movie. Like, oh, 4th of July is coming. We can't close the beaches. Yeah. Yeah. But this is just a regular summer weekend. Very busy. Everyone's down at the beach and the shark 
kills a young boy, Alex Kittner. I have a fun fact about this sequence. Oh, you do? So for this beach scene, Spielberg told John Williams that he wanted the soundtrack to be a bit more amateurish. That was his Mm. description. And John Williams was like, I can't tell my orchestra of musicians who have been practicing and playing for years and years to play worse. I can't do that. And then Spielberg was like, okay, I have a solution for you. I played clarinet in high school. I'll play clarinet. And he did. That's amazing. And so if you're listening to the soundtrack in the speech scene, it's actually Spielberg on clarinet. Wow. Good for him. I know how to play badly. Let me do it. (laughs) But yeah, actually, this is one of the first moments that I noticed that lack of score technique being utilized there's a shot of alex paddling out on his bodyboard or whatever he has and and he's just sort of paddling over the water and it's absolutely dead silent and from that moment like you know this kid's gonna get taken by the shark so alex dies uh it's it's a very sad scene as his his mother is you know, sort of everyone in the crowd is collecting their kids and, and his mother realizes she's the only one left still looking. Very iconic shot of Brody sitting there as they do a, what's called a dolly zoom on his face, mm-hmm. which is basically it was pioneered in vertigo. But this might be the most famous use of it where you push the camera toward the actor and zoom out or vice versa you pull it away and zoom in and so the actor remains in the same spot and frame but the background seems like it's getting farther and farther away it's really really cleverly used here to create this effect of realization and dissonance as he Mm -hmm. watches this kid get attacked by a shark he's like oh no yeah yeah so then they have a town hall of sorts and discuss what they're going to do about this. And even though, you know, this seven, eight-year-old kid just got killed by a shark in full view of basically the entire town, everyone is still worked up about the economy and the tourism. And then there's, <laughs> there's one lady who you see a couple times, and she's like, well, I run a motel, you know, like we have to have the, the summer visitors. <laughs> And it's like, but what about my motel? <laughs> <laughs> this is clearly the most important thing here. Uh-huh. And so there's a fisherman here named Quint who sort of sits in the back and everyone's coming up with these different ideas for how they're going to either catch the shark or just deal with the shark. And he's he kind of sits in the back and he chooses his moment. He's like, <laughs> you're not going to catch this shark, but I'll <laughs> catch it for you. And so he offers his services. He's going to catch the shark. But he is asking a lot of money to do it. And he's like, well, I'll get it for you. But you're going to have to pay me. And they're all kind of like, nah. And, oh, oh, also Alex Kittner's mother has offered a reward for anyone who kills the shark that killed her son. So that's sort of got people, that that sets off a couple amateur shark hunters just who go out looking for the shark themselves. Fun fact about Alex Kittner's mother. Kind of fun fact, kind of fun coincidence, you might say. The actress who played Kittner's mom... I don't remember her name exactly, but years and years later, she visited this beachside sandwich restaurant and there was a sandwich at the beach restaurant that was called the Alex Kittner sandwich, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Memorial (laughs) sandwich, something like that. I don't know. And she got it and like laughed. Ha ha. Guess what? I played Alex Kittner's mom in the movie. And then the owner of the restaurant came running out and he was like, oh, my gosh, I have played Alex Kittner. <laughs> so they got their fun little sandwich mm-hmm. reunion. And that was the first time they had seen each other. Yeah, since. first time they'd met yeah. uh, since then. Yeah. So meanwhile, there's a guy who comes into town and I'm not exactly sure where he comes from, but he's he's an oceanographer that's in a shark specialist that's been sent by do you know some larger organization (laughs) played by richard dreyfus yeah 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 and his name's matt hooper and so he looks at chrissy's remains and 
basically says, yep, that's a shark. And it's it's an interesting scene, which never really came up again. But he he's kind of like getting like a little flustered and, and obviously disturbed by what he's seeing. And he's asking for a glass of water, but he's still examining it. And I, I thought that was going to come up again, you know, as he's kind of dealing with gore and, and different carcasses throughout the movie. Of, it does kind of set him up as the least competent of the group not not intelligence wise but in terms of handling the actual labor that's involved with catching this shark we've established quint as this rough gruff tough guy but he's your he's your typical um east coast gruff old salty sailor man yeah (laughs) fisherman (laughs) dude who has a, a disturbing backstory you can almost see, like, the pipe in his mouth. Yeah. <laughs> and then you've got Brody, who, of course, is competent in his own rights. He's a sheriff, all these kind mm-hmm. of things. And so then a short time later, there's a commotion down at the docks, and there's a group of fishermen that have caught a shark, and they announce that, look here, we have caught the shark. Yeah. <laughs> and sure enough, it's a, it's a large shark. I think Hooper identifies it as a tiger shark. But Hooper, who has just looked at Chrissy's body and made notes about, you know, the the bite radius and and the dimensions of the shark based on the wounds that it left. He's kind of looking at the shark that they caught and is like, mm, I, don't, I don't think that's the shark. And the mayor, the mayor definitely doesn't want to hear it. He's like, hey, we have the shark. The beaches are open. (laughs) (laughs) Money. (laughs) Yeah. And so he's he's very ready to be. Well, we got past this. This is a all of these back and forth on the, you know, economy versus safety felt felt a little on the nose. (laughs) Just a a bit. So that the mayor is, is ready to accept this as the shark and move on with summer. Is is talking to Brody then, and I think Brody also wants to make sure it's the actual shark, but is a little unsure of crossing the mayor. And as this happens, Alex Kittner's mother comes down to see the shark because someone has told her we we got it, you know, justice for Alex. And she comes down to th- see the shark, and she runs into Chief Brody, and he tries to say something to her, and she slaps him and basically just completely lets loose on him because she heard about Chrissy Watkins, whose death apparently was not made public. So she has found out that the week before Alex died, there was another shark attack and a girl died and he didn't do anything about it. And therefore Alex died. Brody's a father. This obviously sticks with him. There's a there's a really poignant scene that comes after this where he's sitting at his dining room table and just sort of mulling this over, folding his hands and and he looks up and and sort of realizes where he is and realizes that his youngest son who looks about 4 or 5 is you know sitting opposite him like copying his folded hands and a stern expression and and yeah. they have this this sweet little game where he you know then makes some funny faces which his son copies and but then Hooper drops by and he tells Brody that he wants to go dissect the shark and see if there are any human remains inside because its digestive system is slow enough that if this is the shark that has been eating people the people will still be in the shark (laughs) and you know that scene with Brody's son you can tell it's not I don't think there's any dialogue it's not really commented on by any other characters it's never brought up again but you know that that's the moment when it sort of becomes personal for him and I believe it's on the same evening they come across a sunken boat out in the bay which belongs to a local fisherman, Ben Gardner. And Hooper dives down to to check it out, see if it was sunk by the shark. And there's a jump scare because the skeleton head pops out at him. <laughs> <laughs> and I think this was actually filmed. This wasn't in the script. This was filmed later mm-hmm. because apparently Spielberg saw test audiences reactions to seeing the shark and he's like, ooh, I want to 
do another scare. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so so Brody, he pulls this great white shark's tooth out of the hole. He's able to identify it, but that's when you know the the corpse pops out of the hole at him, and and he drops the tooth, so he loses it. Sinks to the bottom of the ocean, mm, which but, actually, like the ship, is it super far out? I don't think so. You'll probably dive and get the tooth back. Uh, whatever it is dark <laughs> though isn't it nighttime yeah. yeah but so then Brody and Hooper take their concerns back to Mayor Vaughn and Hooper's like look I found a great white shark's tooth this other guy died while out looking for it we gotta do something and the mayor's like well do you have the tooth and Hooper's like no I dropped it and he's like no tooth, no closed beaches, <laughs> essentially. <laughs> and so his top priority is still just letting the visitors come, encouraging people to be on the beaches. And he's like, oh, we're going to we're going to have we're going to have patrols out in the water to look for sharks. And we're just going to have increased safety measures. But beaches are open. <laughs> And then we get to 4th of July weekend, super packed. And this is actually a really interesting sequence because you go back and forth a lot between shots of the general public just out and about enjoying their weekend. Side note, it looks absolutely miserable to be there. There is not a square inch of space on that yeah. beach. Like, I would kind of hate that. But nevertheless, there's lots of people here enjoying the 4th of July and you keep cutting back to these uh, these guys that have been employed to to watch for sharks. And, and they, sure enough, they see a fin. Somebody spots it while swimming and freaks out. There's a huge stampede to get back to shore. And it's two little boys with a cardboard shark's fin. Come on, kid. Mm -hmm. But while this happens and while everybody is distracted by this prank, the real shark is able to swim into a nearby lagoon which happens to be where Brody's son is swimming because Brody told him to take his boat out there instead because it'll be safer than the actual ocean. And somehow the shark knew this and goes after the kid. I know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the shark was like, this looks like an opportune moment. <laughs> but so there's there's a boater who goes out to to meet the kids and, and check on them. And the this is exactly when the shark comes out and he grabs this boater and kills him and michael brody's oldest son i'm not sure he's maybe 10 something like that yeah. yeah he's he's still pretty young so he sees all this and he goes into shock and has to be taken to the hospital understandably and this is what finally shakes up Vaughn enough to to do something about the shark. And he says to to Brody, like, look, my kids were on that beach too. And and he realizes that, okay, we have to get this under control. We have to close the beaches. We need to get the shark. Naturally, he only cares when it directly affects him. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but so Brody convinces him to hire Quint, who is that grizzled old seagoing man we saw back in the town hall. With the pipe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I'm, I'm not sure what it is about Quint that completely convinced Brody that this is the guy. But he's like, look, we have to pay him whatever he wants. This is the guy that's going to catch the shark. It's probably just his confidence in the town hall meeting. Yeah. Where he was like, yeah, I can do it. It yeah. won't be hard, yeah. but you need to pay me first. Mm -hmm. And then we see Quint and Brody and Hooper all set out together on Quint's fishing boat, the Orca. And fun fact, in the wild, orcas are one of the only known predators of great white sharks. So we're coming for that. you. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then... This was interesting. This took me by surprise a little bit once I realized the entire rest of the movie takes place on this boat. Yeah. So you never come back to shore after they get off and, and sail away. This is about the halfway point in the movie. Yeah. Like it's a really long time that they're out there. And I assume the discussion about it itself will go a bit faster because it is a lot of trying to catch the shark employing a tactic shark mm -hmm. doesn't come shark eventually comes try and catch it doesn't work try and catch it again yeah i think the shark realizes that they're out there and starts 
tracking them specifically a the little bit. The shark likes to play with its food. <laughs> uh, but the the shark comes up behind the boat. I think this is the moment that got test audiences really scared. It's such a fantastic shot. It's a great jump scare, honestly, when the, the shark just jumps out of the water from behind the boat. And by this point, we have been on the boat for maybe 15 minutes Mm-hmm. And it's just been a whole lot of nothing. Mm-hmm. Like you can tell the characters are just sitting there with their legs up waiting to see something. Yeah. So Quint harpoons the shark with a flotation barrel, which I believe is meant to keep him above water so he can't get down and escape. In reality, it was because the shark wasn't working and they had to find a way to identify the shark without the actual animatronic. Oh, interesting. And so they wrote this barrel into the script to be able to not use the shark. Nice. Pretty genius. Yeah. But wouldn't you know it, this shark in particular is so big and so powerful that he goes right back down underwater, even with the flotation barrel attached to him. Oh, and I forgot to mention. <laughs> so during this scene, Brody is setting out uh, a chum line. He's he's leaving bait, essentially, in the water to try to attract the shark. And he sees it come up to the surface and, and sort of watches it swim around the boat and gets his first good look at the full size of this thing. And this is where we get the very iconic line, you're going to need a bigger boat. <laughs> well, fun fact about the iconic line, it's not in the script. It was improvised. It was improvised. Mm-hmm. And, but it was, it's kind of interesting in the editing room, Steven Spielberg watched it and decided that it was a comedic line that came too quick. And so... They copied several frames of film and input it in between of like the empty water so that you had a little bit more silence before the comedy line. Yeah, because I thought didn't didn't that initially come after the jump scare, like right after the jump scare? And so audiences actually missed that line because they were too busy screaming. Yeah. And so he added, (laughs) I think, 34 extra frames, which is about about two seconds, a little bit under two seconds Mm -hmm. of time just to give the audience time to go ah oh (laughs) (laughs) and it worked i always thought that line was we're gonna need a bigger boat yeah no but it's not it's not you're gonna need a bigger boat just like he's like i'm out of here (laughs) the line isn't luke i am your father it's no i am your father yeah yeah thank you for clarifying that for the rest of our viewers you're welcome that night they're all in inside the boat in the cabin i'm not sure and they're getting drunk and exchanging stories about, you know, different scars they've gotten from different sharks and different accidents and who is the tougher man. <laughs> and this is where Quint gives his very, very famous monologue about how he was on the USS Indianapolis, which delivered the bomb to Hiroshima, got hit by two missiles and sank. And the mission was so top secret that they they either weren't realized missing for a really long time or they just weren't reported missing for a really long time. And the very few crew members who survived the initial blast and the initial fall into the water were just left stranded for a really long time. And that occurrence was marked by a lot of deaths from sharks because there were lots of sharks circling these these survivors in the water and actually this as I was watching this scene I remembered a book I read in middle school called Left for Dead and I I had an inkling that this was the same ship that they were talking about in in the book and in the the movie and so I looked it up and sure enough the the book Left for Dead is about the Indianapolis and the sinking but it's more specifically about some kid I don't know his specific age but who learned about the Indianapolis from watching Jaws I do think this movie ultimately brought that disaster even further into the public eye than I think it already had been because I actually don't know if it was common knowledge when it happened because again it was so top secret I'm I'm sure it it got out somehow but yeah so I I think that's that's actually probably a good a very good thing that came out of the movie was a lot of 
people learning about and having respect for this disaster and, and just horrible experience that a lot of those crew members ended up enduring. And, and some of them did survive, but, you know, proportionally almost none of them. Yeah. And this scene, it's probably the best performed scene in the whole movie. Mm-hmm. Robert Shaw's performance giving this monologue is just, he's so ridiculously good in this mm-hmm. scene. And there's actually an interesting story behind the filming of this mm-hmm. scene. So at the time of shooting this movie, Robert Shaw was actually an alcoholic. And it was actually a, a point of tension between him and Richard Dreyfus throughout the filming of the, of the movie. They just didn't like each other very much in general. Yeah. And also, which was probably good for the performance because the characters don't really like each other that <laughs> yeah. much. At one point, apparently Robert Shaw was drinking on set and he like, loudly declared i wish i could just stop drinking and richard dreyfus grabbed the cup and chucked it into the ocean (laughs) um but during the filming of the indianapolis scene robert shaw actually showed up wasted to the filming and just completely ruined it the filming went terribly that day another day behind schedule and that night apparently he sobered up and felt so bad that he called spielberg and was like hey give me one last shot and so the next day they went out and they tried again and he did on the very first take. That's mm-hmm. the one that's in the movie. Yeah. And it's a very important character moment too because now all of a sudden you know why this guy wants to kill this shark. Yeah. It's not, I want to get paid. It's a personal, it's a revenge story for Quentin now. And so while they're having this conversation, well, more of, more of just a monologue, here comes the shark again and the shark rams into the side of the ship and essentially cuts their power kills their engine and they are working through the night to get it fixed and brody tries to call the coast guard (laughs) and get reinforcements because by this point he's realized like what a task they have ahead of them and quint comes in and smashes the radio the next time the shark comes up because again as we mentioned this is just one long stretch of the shark comes does some damage they fight the shark goes away and they try to try to recoup shark comes back they try to to kill it again and you know at different points they try to they try to shoot it they um quint keeps shooting it with flotation barrels to try to keep keep it above water at one point they have the shark on on two lines and and they're towing it behind the boat i think trying to tow it into shallow water to to drown it essentially but they blow out the engine because quint is trying to go too fast (laughs) and the shark is too big and yeah and the shark is too big and the shark manages to get free and in the process pull off part of the boat and now the orca is in the process of sinking now they're trying to pump out yeah (laughs) now they're trying to pump out the boat and they're getting more and more desperate and then hooper comes out comes up with the idea that he's gonna go below in a shark cage (laughs) and just sit there and wait and hopefully the shark will get close enough and we'll try to bite him and he can inject the shark with strychnine, which is a extremely strong poison. Uh, stick it with a needle. Yeah, just stick this needle also in his mouth. Also, it's worth noting this is kind of a full circle arc for Hooper's character, who at the beginning was squeamish at the sight of the kill and now mm-hmm. is risking being the kill himself. And it's kind of a very, very simple arc, but... It's one of the great things about the movie is all these characters have completions of their journeys. Yeah. Yeah. And so he's got this spear with the strychnine in it and he goes down in the cage. And I think Brody especially is really hesitant to do this, but they're at the point where they've realized nothing else they're doing is is working. They're not going to be able to, this, this shark is too big, too powerful. They're not going to be able to harpoon it. They're not going to be able to shoot it. And so down goes Hooper and sure enough, the shark comes up He and he starts ramming the cage and he's bending the bars of this cage. It's so awesome. Uh-huh. And It's so claustrophobic. I hate it. Yeah. But the first time the shark comes up and attacks him, he comes from behind from, from, and, and he attacks Hooper's back and 
obviously this frightens him and he drops the freaking spear <laughs> and uh. down it goes to the ocean and like I knew this was probably going to happen, but still, I was like, oh, come on. And it's set up earlier. It's a Chekhov's gun. It was set up earlier in the movie when he dropped the tooth. He's clearly easily startled. And boom, he's easily startled again. And he drops the spear. Oh, my gosh. I didn't even make that. It's brilliant. It's so smart. The shark keeps ramming the cage and, and kind of bending the bars further and further apart. And starts kind of getting into the cage and Hooper's trying to kick him and fight him off and Hooper manages to squeeze out through the opening and escape and he he dives down to the floor to the seafloor <laughs> and interestingly so for some of the underwater shots of the shark Spielberg sent some crew members or maybe they were like third party filmographers but he he sent some people out to Australia, I believe, and they just took some underwater footage of sharks. And they had a a replica cage in a fake dummy that they had lowered in the water to so that they could get some some shots of these sharks like coming up and, and ramming at these cages. And actually there was one incident where there was this really big shark that swam up while the cage was empty. I don't I don't know what they did with the dummy, but they had they had pulled it back up into the boat but left the the cage there. And the shark got tangled in the line that was holding the the cage down and, and started like thrashing around and, and beating at the cage and, and just sort of tearing it to shreds. And Spielberg saw this and he just loved the footage. But in the original script, which is also what happens in the book, Hooper's supposed to die here. So he's supposed to get eaten by the shark in the cage. But Spielberg just loved this footage of the shark, huh. like caught and, and, you know, just, just thrashing at this empty cage so much that he decided that he needed to use it in the movie. But in order to have that, they needed the cage to be empty, thereby Hooper escapes. I'm really glad that they didn't kill Hooper because it's so great that the people who make it out of this alive do make it out of it alive. Yeah. It's perfect for the characters. Yeah, I agree. And the characters in the movie are very different from the characters in the book. Mm-hmm. Though they have the same names, the same traits. They uh, Their payoffs yeah. are very, very unique. Yeah. As Hooper dives down to the bottom, it was interesting because before he escapes the cage, you know, he's... He, he drops the spear, he's watching it fall to the floor, and, and you get a couple of shots of the spear on the ocean floor cut with Hooper looking down at it. And so I thought that he saw the spear, was going down to get it, and was just going to, you know, try to stab the shark on its own without the cage. That's what I thought was going to happen. That's not what happens. Yeah. <laughs> but that's that's what I was fully expecting to happen. Uh, but then we, we leave Hooper for a little while and just don't see him again for a bit. And that actually kind of surprised me because I, I did think he was going to end up being the one who killed the shark. Speaking of characters who make it out alive, (laughs) the shark, after getting tangled in the cage, breaks free and just launches itself onto the boat. (laughs) (laughs) The shark really went, I'm a land animal now. (laughs) It's jumped on the boat. Yeah, and and, you know, the the orca's already sinking. They're already kind of scrambling. It's pitching this way and that. and, And... so the the shark just heaves itself onto the boat, and obviously the boat tips wildly, and so they they both start kind of sliding around the deck, and Quint slides down into the shark's mouth, and oh my gosh, this is the really gory scene. Sorry, that just, my bad. I'm so sorry. I was, I was physically like writhing on my couch as I watched this because I was like oh and it just kept going too like he is he's trying to fight at the shark as he's being he's being swallowed like yeah and, and and oh my gosh it's it's really a heartbreaking end for his character because after hearing his story about the Indianapolis you really really want him to to get the best of this one shark it's such a good subversion of your expectations because after that speech you're like he's gonna kill it yeah he's gotta kill it yeah and then he gets killed by it and you're like oh no and he meets the same fate as the friends that he was trying to avenge it's and so tragic it's really really tragic but what it does for the movie 
is all of a sudden you don't know how the movie's going to end. Yes. And that's great because from the speech, from the moment the speech happens, you know how the movie's going to end. Robert Shaw is going to kill the shark. They're going to escape probably all of them alive because mm-hmm. there's so much emotional investment. And now all of a sudden, maybe Hooper is drowned. You don't know. Quint has died being eaten by the shark. And you're like, oh my gosh, wait, what if all the characters die and it's the end? Mm-hmm. And that's such a great spot as you're in the climax of the film to be in because now the audience doesn't know what's going to happen. And as a filmmaker, that's that's your playground. Yeah, I think I think that's really, really true, except... For the fact that I accidentally spoiled it a little bit for myself. Here's how, okay, here's how it happened. Here's how it happened. So they established that characters on the boat had guns, and and they were they were kind of shooting at it. And I was like, oh, that's that's gonna work. And I guess it didn't really connect with me that you know the bullets weren't doing much because the the shark's skin was so thick. Mm-hmm. And so I'm I'm watching them just you know harpoon it with more barrels and i'm sitting here thinking well why don't they just shoot it and so i did you google why don't they just shoot the shark in jaws i googled i googled why didn't they shoot the shark in jaws and this was problematic for two reasons because one i forgot that if you use shoot in the context of a movie (laughs) i just got a bunch of articles about how they filmed the shark in jaws i'm like no that's not what i meant but you know google gives you like recommended questions based like related to the question that you actually searched and one of them was how did they kill the shark in jaws and i was like Oh, they're going to kill the shark. (laughs) I was like, why didn't they just shoot the shark? (laughs) I was like, this could have been over 40 minutes ago. You know, these guys are really not great at their job. They have guns. They just shoot it. I keep like... The shark keeps coming out of the water and they're they're like shooting at it and I keep checking the timestamps and there's like 45 minutes left in the movie. I'm like, what are we going to do with this 45 minutes? <laughs> but that would be such a such a wonderful movie if they're like, oh, the shark's attacking Amity Island. Let's go on mm-hmm. the boat. They go on the boat. They just shoot it. And then it's the end. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I would watch that movie. Would you? It'd be less scary. Uh, yeah so anyway now it's just brody as far as he knows because they pulled up i think they pulled up the empty cage and realized hooper wasn't in it so he he assumes hooper is dead he has seen quint become dead (laughs) (laughs) not the best way i could have worded that but and and so in in his eyes it's just him and this shark and his boat is sinking and I, I I will admit, even though I saw, you know, this this recommended search question, I was still a little doubtful. I was like, ooh, like maybe he's not going to kill the shark. Maybe those other Googlers were just really stupid. <laughs> <laughs> the tension is so great in this scene mm-hmm. where, you know, there's such a such a prominent ticking clock with the boat sinking. And it's interesting because this is this is something we haven't really touched on. But Brody is kind of painted throughout the movie as being a little bit cowardly you know he he kind of goes with what the mayor says at the beginning even though he knows it's not really right he doesn't he, he's a little bit afraid of of boating and being out on the water it's never really explained why i don't think he doesn't have a very strong will <laughs> Yeah, he he doesn't want to go out with Quinn. You know, he'll he'll be stand just standing around, kind of not saying much, sometimes, and and looking vaguely horrified or very vaguely scared. But now, even though he has spent much of the movie content to let other people do all the heavy lifting, let Quint give the orders, Hooper argue with him, and he'll he'll just stand around and and sort of do what he has to do what he's told now it's just him and the shark is still a problem he can't just give up because then the town is still gonna have to deal with the shark and it's just him (laughs) and he has to take care of this and so what he ends up doing is he grabs an oxygen tank from from the ship as it's sinking and everything is sliding around and the next time the shark comes out for to to try to take a bite he throws the oxygen tank down into 
the shark's mouth and the shark doesn't swallow it because it's too big. So it just stays there in the shark's mouth and, <laughs> and the shark is trying to chomp at it. Munch, and, munch, munch. It's like a big chew munch, toy. Munch, munch, munch. And then the shark swims away. He's going to circle back and Brody grabs his gun and he climbs up to the highest point of the ship that he can, the mass, which is still above water. And this is just... It's incredible cinematography because as the shark comes back, he's swimming up to Brody and Brody is just clinging to the mast of the ship, which is basically the only thing still above water. And it's, it's just going down. It's going down. And so he is, he is being lowered to the surface of the water. His boat is disappearing from underneath him. And he is, you know, he has these 30 seconds probably. And this is, all he has to to do what he needs to do and he takes aim he misses a few times and then he shoots the oxygen tank in the shark's mouth it explodes and explodes the shark with it in a glorious explosion of <laughs> shark blood <laughs> yeah. yeah and it's it's really cool he has a moment of just extreme relief and i think pride and, and excitement he's just yes like i did it and then it just kind of fades as he realizes oh but i'm by myself out in the middle of nowhere my friends are dead my friends are dead my boat's gone <laughs> like what now and at this opportune moment Hopper just comes bobbing back up from the floor. That's literally how it happens. He, he just he just pops back up. He's like, oh hey, and oh good, I, he killed it. Cool. Yeah, I mean, I assume he probably saw the shark blow up, but it's never made clear. So I I, I don't know, but apparently he was just hiding out on the seafloor until it was safe to come back. Just up. vibing with the crabs on the yeah. seafloor. <laughs> But so he comes back up, Brody sees him, realizes that, you know, Hooper's alive and, and Hooper just looks at him and says, Quint. And Brody says, no. I'm pretty sure actually Hooper comes up and says, Quint. And then Brody goes. Do you think this is a joking matter, Luke? A man got eaten by a shark. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway. And then Hooper. And Brody grabbed the the leftover flotation barrels and lash them together into some sort of raft and, and just start kicking ashore. And that's... They're paddling. Yeah, and that's the end of the movie. I mean, the credit scene is a shot of the beach on Amity Island with two guys floating out in, in the water fairly close to shore. So you do you do get, they get you back. know, an implicit confirmation that they do make it. They they make it back. Which is nice, but that's that's just how it ends. You don't see anything of, you know, good, giving back to their families or the town rejoicing or anything like that. It's, And I think it's better that way because to end it with, you know, after everything that the three of them went through out on that boat to, to just accomplish the singular mission, it would have felt pretty inappropriate and almost anticlimactic yeah to to have any kind of celebration at the end because really i think it was a success but not a victory yeah well they're just kind of reflecting on the tragedy of quint's death still and mm-hmm. it still kind of rings with you while you're watching it because mm-hmm. at this point in the movie you're you recognize that there was no other way that quint's story could end mm-hmm. especially after the indianapolis speech where you kind of touches on the fact that he should have died too and he has no right to be alive survivor's guilt he did die in the exact same way and that is such a profound tragedy and it still rings with you and i'm sure it still rings with the characters Mm -hmm. and so if you got back to shore and you saw the town going yay the shark is dead and the mayor gives them (laughs) (laughs) the mayor gives them each gold medals and they go out to their families and they they playfully watch their kids play in the ocean mm-hmm. and maybe there's a teaser bait where you see a shark fin in the distance or whatever yeah. <laughs> it's like like that would just be such a depressingly generic ending to the story it would have felt disrespectful i think yeah yeah well anyway that's the that's movie jaws yeah so like i said i definitely see 
the nuances and the stylistic choices and just the craftsmanship that have made this movie the classic that it is. And, you know, I did get spooked. (laughs) (laughs) I I did get a little disturbed. I love the movie. I'll watch it many, many times. (laughs) (laughs) I, I just love, it's interesting, horror as a genre, this has, of course, has its footprints in horror. I, I love horror movies, not because they're scary, but because I find them really funny. I, I love thinking about the behind the scenes parts of horror movies and how much fun that the crew was having watching uh, their little puppets jump out from behind the frame. <laughs> and so I I love a movie like Jaws just because I can tell so much went into making this. And it's so impressive to me. Uh, the lengths that Spielberg went to and the limits that he pushed himself to. It's just very admirable from a filmmaking perspective. Mm-hmm. And the storytelling is so good. The thing that sets it apart, the characters, the plot, the pacing, the tension building, it's just all brilliant. The score, everything really works together to make this movie great. And it Agreed. still holds up, even though it doesn't have the most realistic shark in a shark movie ever. Mm-hmm. And all these things, it's still it still feels so much more real than so many attempts to be it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And just to ease any worried minds out there, more people are killed every year by vending machines by sharks. So that is worth noting. (laughs) Sharks are not as dangerous as this movie would make them out Uh to be. Yeah. They're actually quite docile creatures. So, don't worry too much. Don't worry about sharks. You're probably fine. If you have a slightly stronger stomach, though, do watch Jaws because it's a good movie. It is a good movie. It's very, it's it'll make a good uh, spooky night watch. <laughs> if you would like to tell us about your favorite sharks, your favorite shark facts, or your favorite vending machine facts, send us an email at off the watch list at gmail.com. We are also on Instagram. That's at off the watch list pod. I have a favorite vending machine fact. What's your favorite vending machine fact? Did you know that the first coin operated vending machines were in the 1880s in London, England, and they were put there for the convenience of businessmen on their way to work so that they didn't have to eat breakfast. What did they dispense? food <laughs> omelet vending machine because <laughs> well, they didn't have packaging anyway we're not, gonna, we're not gonna spend time on this tangent <laughs> <laughs> thank you guys so much for listening and we'll see you next time <laughs>